house of the Lord this morning, and what a wonderful atmosphere of God's presence. Amen. Thank you, Brother Looper. Thank you for the opportunity to be in Silsby once again. Been looking forward to this time of the year. Now, that doesn't mean this is the only time we could come, but this is usually the time of the year we come. And uh, very happy to be here. Appreciate the uh, warm welcome today. In fact, when I uh, stepped into the foyer and into the sanctuary, many different greetings, but one individual in particular said, well, glad to have you home again, Brother Smith. So I'm glad to be home again. Amen. It's a privilege. church family, good to be with you, Elder Duplessis, Sister Duplessis, and the Looper family. Just an honor to be in the presence of the Lord, and uh, new faces that I see, glad to be with everybody. Heard good reports, good move of God that's been going on, an outpouring of the Holy Ghost, and tugging on hearts, God pulling people by His Spirit. I'm so glad to be living in this day. Yes. I understand our world's in trouble, but I understand our God's on the throne. And He's got great plans in store for His people. Thank you for that word this morning, Brother Looper. Every one of us need to stop and consider how personal God wants to be to us. It's not just a God for somebody else, but He's my God. He's a God I can call on in the good times and in the difficult times. It doesn't matter what the circumstances of life may be. He's an unfailing God. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Uh, brother, your pastor mentioned Ebola a little bit ago. I remember a few years ago when that was a very, very alarming uh, scenario, traveling back and forth between the U.S. and Africa uh, was uh, pretty concerning from the standpoint that Ebola was, was uh, creating a lot of uh, uh, inroads on the African continent in particular. And uh, I remember one day in a service, uh, we were in Nairobi, Kenya, and Sister Smith came up to me in that service. She said, before we leave here today, I want you to pray against that spirit. She said, that's a spirit. It's a spiritual attack, she said, that is trying to hinder what God is wanting to do on the African continent. And it gave me a totally different uh, understanding of what we were up against and what we were dealing with. But you know what? The Lord brought us through all of that, gave us victory. And uh, this coronavirus, it will be the same. I believe our God is still the one that's in charge. I understand that... There's a lot of uh, a lot of concern and even paranoia of uh, this uh, ordeal that's taking place. And if you don't think so, just uh, take a trip. I just uh, returned from India two days ago. I mean, and I realize people have reasons to be concerned, especially when people are dying and. And uh, all of that, but uh, one one individual got on the plane. We were we were flying our last of four flights, and we were going to be flying from Amsterdam to Houston. And uh, 
got into our seats and the woman got on the plane and, and she's sitting just across the aisle from us. There were three seats in that row. Some of those flights are so full you don't have a spare seat anywhere, but this particular flight had a few vacant seats. I want you to know she took advantage of it. She had a spare seat on where she was supposed to be sitting on the aisle. She moved to the center, had a spare seat on each side. She strapped her suitcase into the seat beside her. Stewardess came and said, you got to put that suitcase up. She said, I want my suitcase right there. I got it strapped in. She had it strapped in. She had on one mask. She put on a second mask. She put on rubber gloves. She put on the second pair of rubber gloves. I mean, she's reaching out. She's picking things up like this. She gets the third pair of rubber gloves, and she puts them on. And I thought, Lord, help me. I don't know what I'm in for on this trip. I'm not sure what's going to happen before we get to Houston ten and a half hours later. But anyway, uh, I'm just telling you, there are people troubled. There are people concerned. But I, I want to say today, I have confidence in the Lord my God. I know the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. I don't think we ought to be foolish, but I do think we ought to get up every morning and commit ourselves to God. He's a personal God, just like the pastor said. He's a God that knows me by name. He knows you by name. He knows where we're at. He knows what we have need of before we ever ask. And there's still power in the name of Jesus. There's power over sickness and disease. There's power over all the forces of evil that are in the world today. And it seems like hell has been unleashed. But I'm happy to say that my God will be victorious. And I'm so glad for what he is doing in these last days. We've just come in from uh, missionary travel to India. I bring greetings to Brother and Sister Looper and the Duplices and all the church family here from the Jacomars. And this church, of course, has been a help and a great blessing to the Jacobar's work in India through the years, and they're sending appreciation. We are happy to report that Elder and Sister Jacobar are still still moving forward and going strong. Both of them in their 78th year, and. Physical problems that they deal with, but it doesn't stop them. They keep on going every day. We were in meetings somewhere. In fact, we had one day left and thought we were going to have a down day, a rest day. Before we left, got up that morning, sat at the table for breakfast, and Elder Jacob R. said, Well, he said, we're going to be leaving at 7 o'clock tonight. We're going to another village for a church service. And Sister Smith said, Another church service? I mean, it was day after day, and uh, we'd get back to the house at about 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, get a little bit of sleep, and get up and hit the day again and go after it. And, uh, and uh, Elder Jacob R. said, after Sister Smith said, another church service, he said, well, I cancel if you want me. Oh, I said, oh, no, no. I said, man, we're ready to go. And so we had another church service, and... Uh, they're just great people. Great things are happening in in India. And uh, Brother Anarog Jacomar, their son, he and his wife and three children will be transitioned back to to India full time within just a, 
a few months, by the month of August. In fact, the entire family was there with us. Well, that we were there for meetings. Brother Anarog Jacobar has been there since uh, November, all the way through to the present time, and does have to make another trip back to Canada and get things wrapped up for his family and get them moved back to to uh, the uh, state of Andhra Pradesh uh, in the area of India where the Jacobar's work has been going forward for many years. But thank you for all that you've done to help them, and they wanted to be sure that I'd bring those greetings. Sister Smith, come up here quickly, if you would, please. Now, Brother Luper said if she wanted to sing, but I don't know if Elder Duplissy would even let me preach today if Sister Smith doesn't sing. So, so I'm asking her to come and just greet you briefly, and then she'll sing, and we'll get right into the Word of the Lord. A privilege to be with the people of God today, and we magnify His name.
Amen, amen, amen. Every day, every day he grows sweeter. And if he's not growing sweeter to you, you need another visit to the altar. Another opportunity to reach out and get a hold of his promises and claim every every promise that he has made available to his people. Now, I'm going to try my best this morning to, to bring a message that I feel on my heart from the Lord. I, uh, we landed less than two days ago from India, and uh, it's an 11 and a half hour time change. So, right now, it's uh, nighttime there, or getting toward... Uh, late at night, and we've tried over the last couple of days to shift that time schedule. One or two hours isn't bad. Ten and a half hours is rather rather striking. So if I stop in the middle of my preaching and I'm looking around, I'm probably trying to collect my thoughts. I'll do my best to stay as focused as possible and let the Lord do what He wants to do in this Sunday morning meeting. Again, we love Brother and Sister Looper and appreciate the opportunity to come one more time to Silsby. For a text this morning, I want to read from the book of Luke, chapter 2. I'll begin at verse number 40, Luke chapter 2. Verse number 40, And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit. Filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. When they had fulfilled the days as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph... And Mary knew not of it. But they, and I want you to notice verse 44, but they supposing him to have been in the company when a day's journey. They sought him among their kinfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days, They found him in the temple. For the Lord would help me today. My subject is in the form of a pointed question. Where is the journey taking you? Where is the journey taking you? Or perhaps the title could simply be a journey to nowhere. A journey to nowhere. Thank you, Lord, for your presence. Thank you for this wonderful opportunity to be with your people and to be gathered in this beautiful sanctuary on such a wonderful day. I'm asking that the power of the Holy Ghost would walk among us, move among us, stir every heart, prick our thoughts, draw us close to you, work your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. By way of a little background, 
in the setting of this particular passage, Jesus was only 12 years old. He was at Jerusalem with his mother and Joseph for feast days. When the celebration was over, family and friends who were part of their pilgrimage began journeying toward home. With the first day of travel behind them, everything seemed to be going well until Mary and Joseph discovered that Jesus was missing. He was nowhere to be found. According to verse 43 of our text, we're told the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And then there's a footnote in that verse that mentions Joseph and his mother knew nothing about it. He had remained behind at Jerusalem, but his mother and Joseph knew nothing about it. Thus, whenever they decided to check on the lad, it was only natural that they turned to relatives But to their dismay, Jesus was not with family members. They assumed then that he had to be among the friends in their group. But the truth of the matter is most clear. They really didn't know where he was. In fact, verse number 44 of the text says, They supposed him to be among the company of travelers. They supposed. However, when they finally realized that indeed he wasn't with them, the only logical thing for them to do was return to Jerusalem. They had to retrace every single step of their journey. And since they were totally oblivious to his actual whereabouts, it was necessary for them to search all along the way. By then, of course, they had only been separated for a single day, but you know due diligence of such a frantic search would surely require much more than 24 hours already lost. In their urgent attempt to locate Jesus and be reunited with Him again, they searched for the first day. And then their quest became two long, wearisome days. But still they were not successful in locating him. As a matter of fact, their desperate search consumed three full days before they finally found the lad in the temple back at Jerusalem, interacting with religious leaders and scholars of the day. He was 12 years of age. And here he was interacting with these scholars and these religious leaders. The Bible doesn't say so, but more than likely Jesus was in the very same place that he was whenever Mary and Joseph left him four days before. Can you imagine the anxiety, the panic, no doubt even foreboding fear that was exploding in the heart of a mother For the time, by the time that she finally was able to locate her boy. I'm sure adrenaline was out of control by then. But you know, whenever they did find Jesus and realize that he was safe, it's apparent to me that adults that really should have been more responsible in the first place place total blame on the youth. For his mother asked him, Why have you done this thing to us? 
In all honesty, Mary and Joseph were the ones who really took such important matters for granted. Now, I'm not excusing the boy. I'm not saying the lad should not have been accountable. I'm simply saying they never should have left Jerusalem without being sure he was with them. For the Bible said they supposed... When in all fairness, they should have been much more observant. They should have taken every necessary precaution before ever departing from the city to be fully assured of the child's whereabouts. They didn't. But Mary said to him, Why have you done this thing to us? From my perspective, carelessness on the part of both Mary And Joseph is breathtaking. However, more than a needless waste of time, I'm sure the entire venture turned out to be quite costly for them as well. And of even greater concern is the fact that such a scenario could have quickly turned into tragedy. And all because parents who really should have known better than to be so careless supposed. They assumed when nothing at all should have been taken for granted when it came to Jesus' whereabouts. As a result, Joseph and Mary took a journey to nowhere. They were on their way home. They had to turn with an about face, go back to Jerusalem, searching all along the way. One day, two days, three days, a journey to nowhere, if you will. Now, if something this alarming could happen to people like Mary and Joseph, I pointedly ask individuals in this Sunday morning service, where is the journey taking you? Where is the journey taking you? The church of the Laodiceans that we read about in the book of Revelation chapter 3, the Bible said, was neither cold nor hot. In verse number 16, Jesus told them, Because you are lukewarm, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Now this is a church. This is one of the seven churches of Asia Minor. And they were neither cold nor hot. Because they were lukewarm, Jesus said, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. Then he said, you claim to be rich and increased with goods, needing nothing. But in reality, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. And so in verse 18, he offered them some very wise counsel. He said, you claim to be rich when the exact opposite is actually the case. What you really need is to buy of me gold that's been tried in the fire that you might be rich indeed. And you claim to have everything when in all honesty you're naked. So you really ought to buy some white raiment from me to cover the shame of your nakedness. Furthermore, Jesus said, you claim you need nothing at all, but truthfully, you're blind. You need to anoint your eyes with some healing salve so you can see. 
What Jesus so very much wanted to get across to the Laodiceans was this. He said, you're supposing everything's all right when it really isn't. And you know anybody at all on that kind of a journey is really in big danger of trouble. That is, whenever the case with them is that way too. I've known people in my lifetime. I pastored the same church for nearly 40 years. Preached all over the country. Preached all, all around the world. I've met a lot of people in 50 years of ministry. And I can tell you there are people that have professed one thing and possessed something totally different. I'm not being unkind. I'm not being critical. But people go through this Christian journey supposing far too much. Get up in the morning, live through the day, you know, come to church, go through routines and think, you know, well, everything is all right. And perhaps it is or perhaps it is not. Throughout my entire lifetime, I've always thought of the Laodiceans that we just read about from the book of Revelation. I've thought of them as a lukewarm, backslidden church professing so very much, while in all honesty they were, they were possessing so very little. Yeah, people that were saying they needed nothing. People that were saying they were rich when they were poor. People that were saying they needed nothing at all, but there they were. They were naked. People that were blind. And so they were assuming, they were supposing, they were taking for granted. As far as I'm concerned, the Laodiceans were certainly, were simply on a journey to nowhere. They were supposed to be on their way to heaven. If they were the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they were on a journey from this place to a better place. But truthfully, they were on a journey to nowhere because they did not possess what they professed to have. Looking back into the Old Testament Scripture from the book of Judges, chapter 13 through 16, we have the account of a man named Samson who in so many ways symbolizes God's people in New Testament times and also the present day. Of course, the very purpose of, of Samson's existence was ordained by God from birth he was to follow a path quite different from most other men in that he was to keep the vows of a Nazarite. Furthermore, he was charged with a God-given mission to judge and to deliver the Israelites. A careful review of biblical record certainly reveals notable victories during his lifetime. In fact, we have numerous miraculous feats that were accomplished at his hand and by means of supernatural strength that was unique to Samson. However, more importantly, God fully intended for him to judge Israel and to deliver them out of the hand of their oppressors, the Philistines. Nevertheless, over the course of time, Notable flaws in Samson's life led him further away from the fullest extent of God's purpose. I've come to tell somebody today, sir, God has a purpose for you. 
Ma'am, God does have a purpose and a plan for you. God has a purpose and a plan for every one of us. We may be fulfilling it or we may be missing it. And so as we look into the story of Samson's life, it becomes obvious to me that he was not fulfilling the real purpose that God intended for his life. One such pitfall in Samson's life was his inordinate desire for heathen women to the extent that he visited harlots, the Bible says. And according to chapter 16, he loved a woman of the Philistines. And plainly speaking, the Philistines were fierce enemies of God's people. You cannot love what God hates and love God like you need to love God. I'm telling somebody today under the sound of the preacher's voice, you cannot allow yourself to be at peace with what God is at odds with. If God has an odds with something, if God says it's not right, and you find yourself making a covenant with that, you're in a dangerous position just like Samson was. While Samson certainly wasn't pleasing God as he should have been, yet Delilah recognized there was something very different about him. And with great focus, she determined to find out what made him tick. She wanted to know why he was so very different from most other men. And what was the connection? What was the real source of his extraordinary strength? In fact, we need to carefully note as Delilah pressed Samson with appeals in the 16th chapter of Judges. In verse 6 she said, Tell me, I pray thee, wherein your great strength lies and how you can be subdued. We go to verse number 10. She made a second appeal saying, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Now tell me, I pray thee, how to bind you. How to make you weak. We go to verse number 13 and again she said, Until now you've mocked me. You've told me lies. So tell me what can be done to make you like other men. And then verse 16 says she pressured him day after day with her words, pleading with him so that his soul was vexed unto Death. Oh yeah, you go down through that chapter and it's just pressing, pressing. She wanted to know. She wanted to get to the source of his strength. But noting verse number 18, it tells us when she saw that he had told her all of his heart, she called for the lords of the Philistines saying, Come up this once, for he has showed me everything. And so they came up and they brought money in their hand to give her. She made him sleep upon her knees. And she called for a man to shave off the seven locks of his head. And as she afflicted him, his strength went from him. Verse 20 said, she then said, the Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep. And he said, I'll go out just like I have at other times. And I'll shake myself. But the finale of that verse said, He knew not the Lord was departed from him. 
What, what a terrible, terrible thing. I mean, he's thinking we're playing a game. He's assuming a lot of things here. He's supposing far too much in this situation. But when she cried this fourth time, the Philistines are upon me, Samson. And he said, I'm going to go out just like I have every other time. I'm going to shake myself. I'm going to show them where my strength is. There was no strength there. He knew not the Lord was departed from him. According to verse 21 of the Amplified Bible, we read the Philistines seized him. They gouged out his eyes. They brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with chains of bronze. He was forced to grind grain into flour in the prison. Oh, to witness the waste, the waste, the waste of Samson's life and to follow it through to its bitter end. It's a sad story indeed. However, it's more than apparent to me that Samson took far too much for granted on this journey. Do you suppose he ever stopped along the way to simply ask Samson, to simply ask himself, where is the journey taking me? Or do you suppose he just Thought because he was a Nazarite. And, uh, you know, God had a work for him to do that everything was just going to be okay regardless. I really don't know, but I can say this. He certainly journeyed supposing far too many things. Since God had delivered him from trouble at Gaza, Samson supposed his God would do it again. He assumed his lover would be more loyal to him than she was to her very own people. He further supposed that Delilah was merely playing a game whenever she'd cry out, Samson, the Philistines are upon thee. And he certainly assumed that she had a genuine interest in him, else why was she so intrigued? with the source of his supernatural strength, instead of him realizing that she was trying to get at that very thing that could bring him down, he's thinking, oh, she's impressed with my strength, man. She thinks I'm quite the man. And so he's supposing, assuming, and taking for granted things that he never should have been toying with. Honestly, however, Samson must not have noticed the blatant indications of danger, nor did he pay any attention at all to so to so very many warning signs that were given to him along the way. And for sure, he failed to recognize whenever God's Spirit departed, leaving him to his own demise. He didn't know it. No. The Spirit of God was gone, and he didn't even know it. He was just supposing everything was going to go on like it had always been. He continued on with the journey all the while, supposing that everything was going to be okay. That is, until he was so far off course, until he could no longer help himself. And by then, the Philistines took him and they put out his eyes. 
They brought him down to Gaza. They bound him with fetters of brass. Then ultimately they made him grind as a slave in their prison. Tragically for Samson, the journey didn't take him where he should have gone. Certainly not to the destination that God intended for him. Instead, the journey took Samson to a place I call nowhere. Oh, I know it was somewhere, but it was nowhere. It was not where God wanted him to be. His journey took him to a dead-end street with no way of escape. His journey took him to a place of total emptiness and barren living that some people refer to as Lodibar. His final destination was that of utter hopelessness and waste. It really was a journey to nowhere. The 27th chapter of the book of Acts relates the story of another journey. Certainly didn't end as people supposed it would. At the time of this particular account, as it unfolded, Paul was being transported by ship to Rome to stand trial as a prisoner. After sailing through various seaports, they eventually came to a place that was called the Fair Havens and spent several days there. Verse number 9 says that when sailing was now dangerous because it was late in the year, Paul admonished them saying, Sirs, I perceive this voyage will be with hurt and with much damage, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives. Nevertheless, the officer in charge believed the owner of the ship more so than the words spoken by Paul. Verse 12 says, because the fair havens wasn't suitable to winter in, most of the crew advised that they would depart. And so, according to verse number 13, when the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their Purpose, they lifted anger, anchor and they sailed close by Crete. Not long after, there arose a violent storm. We'd call it a typhoon. It was called uh, Eurocladon or Euroclidon, however you choose to say it. Verse 15 explains that the ship was caught in the tempest and wasn't able to head against the wind. And so the crew gave up and just let the ship drive. As they ran under the shelter of a certain island named Clauda, they were able to pull the lifeboat on deck to secure it. And then they undergirded the hull of the ship with ropes. And fearing lest they'd be driven into perilous shallows of the North African coast, they let down anchors. They lowered the sails. They were driven backwards with the bow of the ship facing into the wind. Verse number 18 says, The next day they were violently tossed about by the storm. And as the ship took on water, the crew began throwing the cargo into the sea. On the third day, they got rid of the ship's tackling and everything else that they could put their hands on to further reduce weight. But the storm raged on and on without any let up at all for many days. Neither sun nor stars could be seen. And finally, it seemed that all hope for survival was gone. They were on a journey. They were on a journey. 
Dropping down to verse number 27, Paul said, After two full weeks, as we were helplessly tossed in the Adriatic Sea, at about midnight, sailors suspected that we were approaching land. And so they sounded, and they found the depth to be 20 fathoms, or 120 feet. And when we had gone a little further, they sounded again, and found that it was now only 15 fathoms. Then fearing lest that we should run aground on rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern to slow the ship, and they wished for the daybreak. Verse 39 tells us when day came, they couldn't, deter- they couldn't determine where they were. But noticing a certain creek with a beach, in other words, they saw this land, but they had no idea what the land was. They didn't know where they had sailed to. They noticed a certain creek with a beach, and they decided to run the ship ashore. They took up anchors, they loosed the rudder ropes, they hoisted the mainsail to the wind, and they headed towards shore. But the ship soon ran aground on a sandbar where two seas came together and waves began filling the vessel from both sides. At that point, the bow of the boat stuck fast in the sand, and the stern began to break up under the force of the violent waves. By the way, verse number 37 tells us there were 276 people in all. All on board this ship. According to the 43rd verse, since the centurion wanted to save Paul's life, he commanded prisoners who could swim to jump into the sea and get to land. And then he ordered the rest of the, of the rest of the people to follow some on boards, others on broken pieces of the ship until all of them had reached land safely. However, I cannot help but notice verse number 21 of the account in particular, where we hear Paul say, if you would have listened, if you would have listened to what I told you, none of this would be faced at this time. None of us would be facing such a perilous scenario now. However, by then you see all 276 individuals were on a journey, whether they wanted to be or not. A journey that in many ways was an even of their own choosing for many of them. But the problem was this. Nobody except for Paul knew exactly where the journey was going to take them. They feared for their lives. They expected they would perish in the violent storm. Only Paul was assured it's going to be all right. Because an angel of God stood by him in the night and said, Be of good cheer. I want to tell somebody today, when you're caught in the midst of the storms of life, there is nothing in all the world like having the confidence of a walk with God where God can speak to you. Oh, you might feel like you're about to go under, but the Lord says, be of good cheer. The Lord says, it's going to be all right. I know exactly where you are. My eyes on you. I know what's going on. I'm going to take care of the circumstances. I've come to tell somebody in Silsby on a Sunday morning, I hope you're not on a journey to nowhere. I hope that you're here today to make sure all is well with the soul and that you're heading in the direction of where God really wants you to go. 
Hatolo bohushayatalala mandaya. Oh my, my, my. You see, in the midst of such uncertainty, most everybody on that ship probably thought their journey was taking them nowhere. They weren't getting to Rome. They weren't going to arrive at their intended port of destination. I promise you, it surely would have ended in hopeless tragedy for everybody that day, except for God's intervention on behalf of a man named Paul. And the scenario was the result of people supposing. Supposing when the south wind blew softly, they supposed. They made a reckless assumption that was not at all accurate. And I'm preaching to somebody here this morning that has made some assumptions that aren't accurate. Yeah, you're going to get things taken care of in time. You suppose you've got plenty of time not realizing that you might not have but a few minutes left on your time clock. You're supposing far too much. This is a wonderful church family. I love coming to Silsby. I, I thoroughly enjoy the atmosphere of God's presence when I walk through these doors. Love all of you people. But I'm telling somebody today that's been taking too much for granted today. You need to wake up. Today, you need to ask yourself in this Sunday morning service, where is the journey taking me? Where is this journey taking me? Am I really heading to the destination that God has intended for me? In the 13th chapter of Luke's Gospel, we hear Jesus saying, Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hand up gather the brood under her wings, and ye would not. On Israel's part, you see, it was continual rejection of God's love and a passionate appeal for them to come near to Him. In fact, for generation after generation, they simply kept pushing Him further and further away. John 1 and verse 11 says he came to his own and his own received him not. Pitiful, pitiful. They were his own. He came to them and they received him not. Throughout all of his earthly ministry, Jesus performed one miracle after another. He fed the hungry. He bound up the brokenhearted. He cleansed lepers. He forgave hopeless sinners. He healed sick bodies and raised dead back to life again. He cast out evil spirits by the power of His Word. And He did all manner of good for those that He came in contact with. That's the Jesus I know. That's the Jesus we serve. He still is able to do exceeding and abundantly above all that we ask or think of Him according to the power that worketh in us. But you know, people everywhere, then and now, assume far too much. 
They take so very much for granted, in fact, some even supposing that Jesus wasn't or isn't who he really claimed to be. Then in the hall of judgment, whenever Pilate gave the Jews a choice between releasing Jesus, who, by the way, was an innocent man, or Barabbas being held for robbery, murder, and insurrection, the angry crowd said, Give us! Looking at verse 22, Matthew 27, Pilate questioned them, What shall I do then with Jesus who is called Christ? To which they replied, Let him be crucified! But wait just a minute. I said, wait just a minute. There would certainly have to be a price tag attached to such a reckless choice. Hope somebody's listening today. Choices that we make along the journey. Reckless choices that we think we're just going to make and, and it's just a flippant decision and tomorrow's going to be no different. But there's going to be a price tag attached to certain choices along the way. According to verse 24 of this setting, Pilate washed his hands in a public display before the people. He said, I'm innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. To which all the people answered, His blood be upon us and upon our children. But let me interject something right here. It's very unwise. To carelessly take life and its choices for granted. That day they wanted Jesus crucified. So much so that they were willing to say let his blood be on us and on our children. However, for those who cried such a thing that day, it was just one generation later. In 70 A.D. that a Roman general by the name of Titus laid siege of Jerusalem and over the next four months his forces literally ravished the city along with its beloved temple. According to Josephus who was a noted historian, far more than just a million people, far more than a million people died as a result of such an assault. That's a lot of people. A million people died when this Roman general besieged the city. But remember, those Jewish people had said when Jesus was being crucified, let His blood be upon us and let His blood be upon our children. Many of them died due to violence and others because of severe famine. At any rate, in addition to a million casualties, nearly 100,000 more helpless souls were taken away into captivity to live out the rest of their days as slaves. And all because for so many generations and centuries of time, God's people had taken him for granted, simply assuming that he would be there and supposing they would continually get by until the journey took them nowhere. The journey didn't take them where they should have gone. The very same manner, I wonder, 
I wonder this Sunday morning if somebody in this sacred setting might be taking your journey for granted too. Maybe you've been on this journey for a while. Could be somebody that's been on the journey a lifetime. But are you taking it for granted? Or is your experience with the Lord up to date? Is the Holy Ghost still as real today as it's ever been? Have you prayed through recently? Have you allowed that refreshing of the Holy Ghost to flood your soul all over again? Perhaps it's somebody here today and you know the way, you just haven't been walking the way. You know what's right, you just haven't been doing what's right. You fully intend to get everything in order before the trumpet sounds. You're assuming too much. You might not live till the trumpet sounds. Or the trumpet could sound any moment. Just trying to help somebody today to stop and take inventory in a Sunday morning service. Perhaps you're hurrying through life supposing so many things. When in reality just a simple checkup this Sunday morning could help you so very much. How far are you going to travel on a useless journey? Joseph and Mary were going home, supposing. No, they had to turn around and go back to Jerusalem, searching all along the way. Any journey at all without Jesus will prove to be futile, a complete waste in a most accurate sense of the word. Nothing more than a journey to nowhere. Yet I wonder today how many in this wonderful congregation of people, how many people like Mary and Joseph of yesteryear are attempting to make the journey home, supposing too many things. Truthfully, someone needs to stop right now and check before the journey takes you to some place you really don't want to end up. It's not enough to claim we have the Holy Ghost. All that really matters is if and when the Holy Ghost has complete control of us. Why are you doing what you're doing, Brother Smith? Why don't you just slow down? I'm doing just what God wants me to do. And as long as I know I'm doing what He wants me to do, I'm feeling a peace about the journey. But if I ever sidestep on this journey and start supposing what I should not be taking for granted, then I have no guarantee what the future is going to be. Do we really possess what we profess to have? You can be very sure of this one thing today, and that is this, the church. The church of Jesus Christ collectively is going to make the journey. I'm not worried about the church, but I'm concerned about me and about you. Jesus Christ said He was going to have a church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. The church has a divine purpose. The church has a message that will never change. And the church has an eternal destiny that is forever secure. However, only you and only I will ultimately decide where the journey is going to take us. 
God's challenge from 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. In the sixth chapter of his Ephesian letter, we hear Paul's unwavering challenge to the church as he wrote, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not. I want you to know what Paul said then. It still stands today. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. I don't want you to take for granted the journey today. We're still in a spiritual warfare. We're still fighting against these spiritual forces that Paul was talking about. One Friday evening many years ago, while preaching a youth rally an hour or so from home, I may have told this story here. I intended to tell another story that uh, I had included in this message, but this is what I feel right now, so I'm going to tell it if, even if I've told it before. I was preaching a youth rally about an hour or so from home. There was a young woman sitting in the service. She sat with a smirk on her face throughout the entire preaching of the message. She'd grown up in that particular assembly, but by then she had moved out of state she was home only for a brief visit. She was raised in just that little rural town. She was involved in Bible quizzing and various other church activities. But she got her eyes on bigger and better things. She thought they were bigger and she thought they were better. Until eventually she ended up in the fast lane. She was living what the world calls the good life out in Vegas. During altar call that particular Friday evening, and again I said she was home just for a visit. But while most everybody else was already praying, I remember leaving the platform. I walked right down the center aisle and knelt at the end of the pew beside where Priscilla was seated. I encouraged her to pray. I asked her to reach out, get a hold of God that night. But instead, she merely grinned at me. She shook her head as if she was far beyond such simplistic thinking anymore. My pleading was to no avail. Finally, I said, Priscilla, I see some very dark clouds hanging over your head. And unless you take time to reach in God's direction tonight, I promise you the future is not going to be well for you. I wish I could tell you that she broke. I wish I could tell you she yielded to God at that point and began crying out for mercy and help, but she didn't. No, that silly grin just stayed on her face. She was in the fast lane. She was living the good life, and she really believed she was going to beat the odds. I didn't hear anything at all about Priscilla for the next couple of years or so. Then, one morning, I was in the church sanctuary for prayer time, and the church secretary came to tell me I had an important call. 
That was very concerning to me because the secretary would never disturb me when I was in prayer time except for emergency situations. So I stepped to the platform and reached over beside the organ on the wall. There was a telephone. I picked it up and said, hello. The voice on the other end of the line was very panicked. And uh, she introduced herself as Priscilla. I knew immediately who I was talking to. Hadn't seen her in the past two years or so. And hadn't heard her voice since that Friday night youth rally. But I knew immediately who Priscilla was. And uh, she promptly informed me that she was in desperate need of help. She said, my life has spiraled out of control, Brother Smith. Uh, I'm hooked on drugs. I'm deep into prostitution. Uh, My health is broken. I'm frightened. I'm very afraid. Uh, In all honesty, Priscilla felt like she'd been run over out in that fast lane. She had been run over by the forces of evil. The enemy had taken every advantage of her that he could, and now he's leaving her by the wayside dying. Yeah, she discovered that that so-called good life wasn't so good after all. She's crying. She's pleading. I said, let me pray with you, Priscilla. Now, we're talking about literally hundreds and hundreds of miles separating us. I'm on a telephone line in a church sanctuary. I have no idea where she was where when she was calling. But she's desperate. She needed help. And she remembered a Friday night youth rally when Brother Smith was saying, Priscilla, you really need to pray. You need to get a hold of God. But she thought, no, 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 there's plenty of time. I prayed. I did everything I could to help her that day. The problem was two years or so before God really wanted to help her. And she just turned a deafened ear. And those dark clouds that I saw hanging over her life truly were hanging over her life. I got a message not long thereafter. Priscilla was only in her, her probably mid-thirties, if that. Priscilla was gone. She had died, gone into a Christless eternity, as far as I know. Because in a Friday night service, when God was reaching, she supposed... She'd have plenty of time. She assumed, you know, that she could get by and beat the odds. And in a Sunday morning service in Silsby, there's somebody here just like Priscilla. There's somebody here like Priscilla today. And there are some dark clouds hanging over your present and your future. You say, you're scaring me, preacher. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm being honest with you. I'm telling you, God's got a plan for your life, just like he had a plan for Samson's life, and he took it for granted. Just like he had a plan for the Laodiceans, and they took it for granted. Just like he had a plan for, and on and on it goes. I have no doubt in my mind. I look back to those days when Priscilla was a Bible quizzer. The question would be asked, 
she'd hit that board, answer the question. She was on top of it. She was a top quizzer. Oh, yeah, she knew what the book said. She knew the verses. She could quote them frontwards and backwards, if you will. But it's one thing to know it up here. It's another thing to get it down here. It's one thing to have it in your head. It's another thing to have it in your heart. And I'm saying to somebody on a Sunday morning, I hope, I hope you won't walk out of here supposing everything's all right. I hope somebody will stop long enough just now to say to yourself, where is this journey taking me? Am I really going in the direction God wants me to go? Come on. Come on, some young family, some dad today, some mother today. Remember, you're not just making a choice that's affecting you, but you're making choices that are going to affect your family. There were people on board that ship going to Rome. They were on that ship as prisoners. They didn't make the choice to go. They were compelled to go. And you're compelling your family to go on a journey with you. And if it isn't the journey it ought to be, then what are you going to do when you stand before God? Oh, God, have mercy. I wonder if you'd stand with me right now. I know it's Sunday morning, but I feel conviction. I feel the reaching hand of God. I feel the tug of His presence. He's reaching for somebody to step toward an altar of commitment and consecration. Somebody today that would say, okay, i got to do something about it today. No, I'm not asking you to do it out of fear. I'm asking you to do it knowing that God is looking in your direction and that God has got His hand reaching to wherever you are this Sunday morning. Oh, Every time I go to church at my son's church, I see a man sitting back there, never misses a service. A good man. Oh, a man walking with God, living for God. I see him, you know, in church. Every time the altar's opened, he's in the altar. But some many years ago, he fell away from God. He walked after the things of this world. He and his wife left church. And while they were out of the church, their son got very, very sick. Their son had lived in the world with them, doing the things of the world. And on his deathbed, that dad's son looked up at his dad. He said, Dad, am I going to hell? Dad, am I going to hell? And all because a dad and a mother had made a choice to walk out of the house of God and take their family with them. And now their son's going into eternity with no hope, with no feeling of confidence because parents made a choice. They supposed everything would be okay in time. But, but in the process, in the midst of it all, a child went into eternity, a young man in his teens. I'm wondering today, I'm wondering where's the journey taking you? Are you going to make it to the other side? Are you going to walk streets of gold? Are you going to walk in the presence of the Lord forever? Are you going to hear Him say, well done. Oh yeah, this is a Pentecostal church service this morning. You say, I don't like feeling uncomfortable like this, but we need to feel this kind of conviction. We need to feel the reach of God's hand and the tug of His Spirit. He's pulling somebody today. Somebody needs to step out of your seat and make your way toward an altar. I give you the invitation. You don't have to wait another moment. You don't have to wait for somebody else to come. It's between you and God. There's a God that's reaching in your direction. And if you reach toward Him, you won't go out of 
these doors like you came in Jesus' name. You'll go out of here better and different than you were when you walked into this sanctuary on a Sunday morning. I feel the tug of the Holy Ghost. I feel the pull of His Spirit. There's conviction reaching. In Jesus' name, the altar's open right now. I'm turning this to the pastor. He can do with it whatever he feels Hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, church. Come on. Let's pray. Somebody respond to the presence of the Lord right now. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. The Holy Ghost is in this house. God has spoken to us today. Why don't you make some right choices in your life this morning? Church, reach out to God right now. Come on, lift up your voice. Lift up your voice. Lift up your voice right now. Hallelujah. 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 Would you come today? Would you come today? Would parents make new commitments to God today? I want to lead my family in the right direction. I want to do the right thing. I want to make the right choices. I don't want to be on a road to nowhere today. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Oh, mighty God, come on, young people, reach out to the Lord today. Lord, take me back to that old. Hallelujah. Oh, Holy Ghost. God is reaching for you today. God is reaching for you today. Don't turn Him away. Come to this altar of repentance right now. Come to this altar of mercy and grace right now. Hallelujah, Jesus.